Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash EDT. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Welcome to this peer voice on demand activity based on a recent live event. This video based activity comprises four presentations. At any time during this activity, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. So, good early morning,、uh, but it's never too early to talk about obesity these days.、Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce you to this、uh, CME. Um, that is entitled Providing State of the Art Care for People with Obesity. Can we break free from the status quo?、Uh, it is my immense pleasure to share、uh, the chairmanship and this morning with two、uh, key opinion leaders, Karel Leroux from the University College of London uh, and uh, Navet Sattar from the University、uh, of Glasgow. Myself,、uh, I'm from the University of Rome. And I invite、uh, on the podium Professor Carellero. He will uh, deliver uh, a talk about reframing obesity as a chronic disease.、Uh, Carell is an outstanding speaker, so you'll really love him. <laughs> Carell. Thank you so much.、Um, and it's wonderful to be here. And you know, I think this is really the option now for us to stand back and reflect where we are and how we can move the field forward. And I think one of the ways to do that would be actually to reframe obesity as a chronic disease. Now, when we look at how we have thought about obesity, because it has been pretty complicated, we've said this is a multifactorial disease. And we've considered you know, the behavior side, the metabolic side, the socioeconomic side, and there's no doubt that all of that plays a role and contributes to what we are seeing in our patients today. However, I think it still makes it difficult for us to treat the disease. Because if you ask a medical student, you know, is obesity a disease? Some of them will say yes. Now, the smart ones will say yes. And when you ask them, you know, if it's a disease, which organ of the body is causing the disease? That is where the house of cards f a l l down. Because most of us in the room can tell me about the more than 220 complications of obesity. And we are very good when we think about you know, what are the impact of the disease. But when I'm asking you what organ of the body Causes the disease. That's where we don't have consensus at the moment. And I think the science is starting to help us move in the right direction. But what we have done, and the reason why that question is so important, because what I have done, and probably what you have done in your practice, in good faith, we have asked our patients for many years to do the following. And this is Sisyphus, our Greek character. And you remember he was thrown in the depths of Hades. Of hell, and what he had to do is he had to roll this rock up this hill every day. And every day he got to the top of the hill, the rock would roll down. And that is what you and I asked our patients to do that had the disease of obesity. We asked our patients in good faith to eat less and move more. 
Okay? And of course, all of us can eat less and move more. But when we have done it, even if you have a body mass index of 21, if you have eaten less and moved more for a period of time, what would happen? You would just become hungry again, you would eat more food, and you would go back. And that's what happens. The rock rolls down. And what we want to do now by reframing the disease of obesity is we want to remove the rock. Okay? It's not about standing on a pedestal anymore and just being the best person in your hospital or the best person in your country to and, and, you know, motivate people to eat less and move more. You have to be the person that actually removes the rock. And the way to do that is to understand the disease of obesity and to address it as a fundamental disease. This is another famous painting that hangs in the London Gallery. And this is how society, um, Victorian society, viewed science. And you can see the mad scientist, that's probably Paolo in the middle, you know, doing you know, his experiments and showing you know, how we can now achieve 25% weight loss with the treatments that we have. But look at the reaction of society. Again, you can see the gentleman in the far right-hand corner, the deep thinker, that's maybe Navita over there, thinking about what the implications are. But you can also see how the media is reacting. You know, maybe the young girl at the front looking away, being completely frightened. Maybe that is our, um, our payers at the moment. You know, they are completely frightened about what is the implication of treating obesity as a disease. And of course, there's many people that are uninterested, you know, in this field. <clears throat> but we in medicine are also just a reflection on society. So you will see many of your colleagues reacting in similar ways. People, some people are really excited, de thinking deeply about how it's going to change your patients. Other people, you know, are saying to you, no, we should not be medicalizing obesity. Now, I'm asking you with tears in my eyes, you know, what other disease do you know that we will say we should not medicalize? Right? And that's why it's so important that when we say obesity is a disease, we actually buy into the concept that it is a disease. Because many of us and many of our colleagues, especially in primary care, they have now drunken the Kool-Aid. So they will now say to you, obesity is a disease. But when it comes to treating it, they don't treat it like a disease. I think that is the next step that we now need to take. But what is driving some of these challenges? And we have to be, you know, reasonable, objective, and also acknowledge the challenges. And one of the big challenges is the, the differentiation between treating the disease of obesity on the one side and what we refer to as the cultural desire for thinness. And the cultural desire for thinness, as illustrated by this cartoon, is not something new. It's not the Cardassians that brought this around in the last five years. This has actually been going on for many years. So people who have suffered with a disease of obesity, they have been stigmatized for centuries. Um, and yet when we treat people, you know, we are also con you know, confronted with this idea, you know, what am I doing here? Am I treating somebody with a disease of obesity or am I treating somebody with a cultural desire for thinness? Now, clearly there can be an overlap. Somebody could have the disease of obesity and have a cultural desire for thinness, or sometimes people may not have the disease of obesity and have a cultural desire for thinness. So I spend a lot of my first consultation, you know, when I speak with patients to understand what is driving patients. Because maybe in your clinic and my clinic, people come to us because they want to become thin and they want to become happy, right? And I don't run a slimming club. 
you know, I run an obesity center and my objective is to make people healthier and more functional. So I'm spending time, you know, trying to move the objective of the patient to align with what I can do um, so that we, you know, can, you know, really get aligned as regards the outcome. Now, there's nothing wrong with having the cultural desire for thinness. <clears throat> you know, I don't have a problem, an ideological problem with that. It's just that I can't treat that. Right? And we have to be very careful when we are looking at our data and when we're interpreting it that we, are don't, that we don't start selling cultural desire for thinness treatments, treatments, but rather focusing on treatment of the disease of obesity. I am taking an extreme view, maybe, but I'm suggesting to you that I now think of obesity in my clinic as a subcortical brain disease. I'm highlighting the hypothalamus there, but of course the area postremo, the nucleus tractus solitarius. And if I think about obesity when I treat a patient as a subcortical brain disease, two things happen. The first thing, I have a lot of empathy with my patient. But I also have a lot of sympathy with myself because it's difficult to treat subcortical brain diseases. Okay? And many of you work you know, as endocrinologists and you understand how difficult it is to treat these diseases and hence you know why we have respect for the treatments that we have, hence why we also have respect for our patients that don't respond to our great treatments, be it nutritional therapies, pharmacotherapies or surgical therapies. Um, so at least that is in my mind the organ that I am first and foremost focused on when I am treating disease. Now that doesn't mean all the the diseases of obesity as subcortical brain diseases, but certainly it appears to us that most of them, you know, appear to be in that setting. Now, here's another controversial concept that has helped me redefine obesity in my own clinic. And this is this idea that we are no longer thinking of obesity as an energy problem. We are no longer thinking of obesity as a problem of energy in, energy out. Energy in, energy out is the same, you know, sort of level of thinking as bariatric surgeons that tell you their operations work through restriction and malabsorption. It is a really simple concept. It's really attractive to think in this way, but it's probably not correct. Okay. Now, the reason why I'm saying this is imagine my house. You know, I live in Dublin. It's always cold, you know, so I have pretty good central heating. And it turns out that my house is always at a constant temperature. But you would be wrong if you think my house is, a, is at a constant temperature because I've got a good boiler system and I've got good insulation. So boiler system is gen generating energy in. The heating you know, and the prevention of my, my windows prevents energy out. Okay? Because the temperature of my house is not controlled by my really good boiler or my really good windows. The temperature of my house is controlled by a thermostat that sits in my kitchen. And I decide how much, you know, what the temperature is in my house. You know, I typically turn it to 19 Celsius and then the, my wife and the kids come up and they turn it to 23 Celsius. Um, but what you will find is that I can work out where that temperature sits. So if you think about obesity in the same way, that we now think of it as a disease that's a pathophysiology that controls the amount of adipocytes your body wants to carry. 
Okay? So if your body wants to carry enough adipocytes to give you a body mass index of 40, it's going to turn the energy in up when you are below a BMI of 40. But if I treat your um, body, if I treat your obesity rather with a really good pharmacotherapy or really good surgical therapy or really good nutrition therapy, and I fundamentally change the pathophysiology of the disease of obesity, what happens instead of your BMI being 40, now the, your body wants you to have enough adipocytes to give you a body mass index of 30, 30. Okay? Now, you have seen that in your clinic. You have seen, when you have had a patient, for example, that have bariatric surgery, the last thing you ask a person after bariatric surgery in the first year is to lose weight. Because they lose weight automatically. Now what we are seeing with our new medications, the same thing happens. You never have to ask a patient to lose weight when they have an effective treatment because they do that automatically. You and I spend our time looking after their nutritional health, making sure that they are nutritionally intact while they are losing weight, but we don't have to ask them to lose weight anymore because what we are doing today is we are not changing energy in energy out. What we are doing is we're changing the thermostat that sits in my kitchen in the patient's subcortical brain areas that controls how much adipocytes they have to carry. Okay? So if you get that, the way you're going to treat your patients next week when you go back to clinic is going to be fundamentally different. So here is our problem today. So the word obesity, and I'm looking again as Paolo, as our native Latin speaker, you know, um, comes from the Latin that literally means made fat as a result of eating. And I genuinely thought that, you know, two years ago. And therefore, if you think overeating causes obesity, it is very, very reasonable for you to m help people eat less. But I'm suggesting to you that we are 180 degrees wrong. The insight that we have now is that the disease of obesity is causing people to overeat. And when we effectively treat the disease of obesity, what magically happens is people eat less. Right? So that also helps us to use how much people eat, not as thinking of this as the cause of their obesity, but helping us understand that this is a surrogate marker for how effective our treatment is. Okay? So that is another way to reframe this as a disease and to think of it. So how do we move forward? This is the Canadian guidelines, and I really think they have helped us move forward. So having good guidelines that is thoroughly thought through, um, I think has made a massive difference. So we think of the pillars of obesity, but what we want to do, our roof is made of a combination of good nutritional therapy and good physical activity. So I say to all my patients, I want you to eat healthily, I want you to exercise. I do not think healthy eating and exercise is going to make you lose weight, but healthy eating and exercise is going to make you healthier. Remember, that's the objective of our treatments. But to, to support healthy nutrition and also healthy exercise, we use psychological interventions, pharmacological interventions, and surgical interventions to treat the disease. And hence why we have this framework, and we also know that neither, none of us in this room 
are smart enough to put your hands on a patient and say, you will respond to a gastric bypass or you will respond to a nutritional therapy. <clears throat> we don't have that ability. We can't predict yet. We will in the future, but we can't predict yet. So therefore, use all of those treatments. Don't only try to hold up your roof with one treatment. You know, so have all three of those treatments in your clinic so that you can help your patients. So allow me to summarize and suggest to you that we now think of obesity as complex and chronic set of diseases. It's characterized by excess adipose tissue that causes a deterioration in health. And there's multiple and diverse diseases that result in excess adipose tissue. And also, today, you know, we have to be clear with ourselves that maybe not all forms of obesity require treatment, but when we treat people, the objective should always be health gain. So you are measuring your success, not in kilograms, you're measuring your success either in quality of life or metabolic benefit or mechanical benefit. And we're going to learn more about that in a second. So I'm handing over to, to um, Navid and um, thank you very much. And there'll be some time for questions in the end. Thank you very much, Carol. I'm, I'm going to change pace a little bit because I'm from Glasgow and you have to tune into the Scottish accent a little bit, so um, I'll let you do that. Um, so let me carry on. Um, I really enjoyed that, Carol. It made me think a few different things, um, which I hadn't actually appreciated before, but we can come back to that in the questions. So this is obviously on the, on, on the left-hand side. Where you go? I can use the pointer. Um, you know, traditional units of um, adiposity, BMI is what we use, and I think you all know this very well. Um, ideally, we would like all of our population to be within the normal range, but obviously that doesn't happen for the reasons that we, partly you heard. But of course, BMI um, by, uh, on its own is not perfect. It doesn't necessarily capture the distribution function uh, of adiposity. And if you think of adiposity, you can think of it in potentially two different ways. Um, you can think of it, you know, sort of, sort of the kind of physical and pathological and mechanical forces that it can cause. But equally, you can think of it as sick fat disease in the sense that you have deranged endocrine, metabolic and immune responses as well. And you'll see that on two subsequent slides, how that actually different conditions relate to different aspects of this. And some conditions relate to both aspects as well, um, which we can come back to in questions as well. By the way, I've never been called a deep thinker before. My wife, my wife will be surprised. So, I'll <laughs> so here's a paper in terms of let's go to BMI and mortality. This is probably the best paper that I'm familiar with. It was published um, 2016 the global BMI mortality. Um, and the thing I want to point out to you is when you look at BMI at older ages, 70 to 89, you'd see this kind of classic U-shaped curve. Um, but, and then the deer tends to be around about 26. Oh, you think, well, I must be healthy at 26. Well, actually, that's not quite right because there's lots of subclinical illness that we can't pick up that affects your weight. So the, the truest picture is probably going younger. And if you go to younger people, you can see it's less of a U-shaped, more of a J-shaped. And you can see certainly beyond a BMI of about 21, the risk goes up. So that, I think, provides a more truer association um, of the association between adiposity, BMI, and mortality. And then here's a figure that you've all seen in different guises, but again, it's now split up into the kind of different types of um, features. So in a sense, you've got mechanical aspects of obesity, metabolic, and mental health. And you can see how different conditions on the right-hand side are associated with these things. So for example, chronic back pain, perhaps more mechanical, sleep apnea, more mechanical, 
uh, incontinence and arthros arthrosis, etc. Whereas, for example, um, depression, anxiety, clearly more mental. But other conditions, type 2 diabetes, is clearly metabolic. There are other conditions that should be put in cardiovascular, which is predominantly meta uh, sort of cardiometabolic or, or endocrine or, or inflammatory, but they probably have some aspects of mechanical in there as well. It's not all or nothing. Some, and sleep apnea probably has some other metabolic component as well. So, but nevertheless, I think you get the point that some aspects are more mechanical, some aspects are perhaps more metabolic, and some are more sort of mental uh, health. And of course, the other thing that we're also all recognizing is in our hospitals nowadays, and in the patients that we see in our clinics, Many of our patients have three to four of these conditions and they often overlap. And that is actually causing, certainly in the UK, um, it's, it's causing a huge headache. Um, NHS is pretty much really struggling from lots of patients with, I, know, I, know, I think we're not supposed to use the term multimorbidity, it's long-term multiple conditions. And we have multiple people living with five or six conditions on 15 or 16 drugs. And that is the big, big issue. And many of those conditions are linked back to excess weight. The strongest association, if I was to ask you, um, all of you, and I'm really actually impressed that you're all here so early in the morning. I'm just, <laughs> it took me out, it was a struggle to get up this morning, but anyway. Um, but if, the, if I asked you which condition is most strongly linked to uh, uh, excess adiposity, you would all say, well, it's actually type 2 diabetes. And it is. You can see the hazard ratios of the relative risk don't go up to two to three fold. They go up to almost 50 to 80 fold higher, which is substantial. What other condition do you know that has a hazard ratio that high? I can't think of one. Um, so type 2 diabetes is a disease of excess ectopic fat. And this actually sh shows that this is a cartoon adapted from a paper that Jason Gilnay wrote. But as people put on weight, um, depending on your age, sex, and ethnicity, you will put fat into the sort of ectopic tissues at different gradients. I will put it on faster than Karel because I'm South Asian. I might be more handsome than he is, but I'm South Asian. <laughs> I know, I'm wishful thinking. But I'm South Asian, I have a family history of type 2, my brother has pre-diabetes, and I'm much more likely to put ectopic fat for a given BMI. And therefore, I'm more likely to put fat into my liver, at lower BMI, into my muscles, in my pancreas. These things then affect uh, how well your tissues cope uh, with um, reaction to insulin or produce insulin. I will put fat around my blood vessels, around my heart. Um, and all of these features then beget the risk factors that you're familiar with. As you put on weight, you have higher blood pressure. That also is partly linked to salt intake. If you put on weight, oh, sorry, you will have uh, abnormal lipids, uh, which you know, you're familiar with, high triglyceride, low HDL. As you put on weight, and as weight goes up over time, excess fat in these organs will beget uh, hyperglycemia through a combination of um, problems, uh, insulin resistance, I don't really like that term, in the liver and muscle and impaired beta cell uh, production of insulin. And my thinking, simple thinking as well, in each individual, hemoglobin A1 rises over time broadly in a linear correlation to BMI. And I can see that in our patients clinically. Of course, beyond BMI, we have other anthropometric measures. And here's waist circumference, a paper we published back in 2018 in the UK Biobank. And you, if you look at cardiovascular disease, the risk of cardiovascular disease, you can see quite clearly on the top two, uh, looking at CVD events in men on the left and women on the right, again, you get that kind of J-shaped curve. But if you looked at waist circumference, it's much more linear. So where you put your fat matters to cardiovascular disease more than perhaps BMI. So, Karel, what, what, 
where are we going with this field? And maybe mention the Lancet Commission as well, if, if, you, if you would, if, um, please. Yeah. So I think the Lancet Commission is really going to move the needle trying to redefine obesity. But um, we keep coming back to BMI being terrible, but the best thing that we have. You know, and I think that's what we just have to do in a crooked world at the moment is understand that you know, our insights are limited, but this is still a useful tool, yeah. albeit very, very imperfect. Paolo, yeah, you agree with that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, completely. Uh, th th this reminds me the Winston Churchill about the judgment about democracy. It's terrible, but it's the best thing that we have. So <laughs> uh, certainly I think that uh, moving to a better definition of adip adiposity measure is really of paramount importance. And uh, uh, certainly many times um, GPs uh, tends to say, well, okay, I can, I, can, I can see that the patient has obesity or has uh, large waist. But uh, now that we are moving, probably also thanks to Lancet Commission and more detailed guidelines to uh, a treatment priority um, um, linked to certain adiposity measure, I really think we need to measure okay. all the measurable things. Okay. Every single measure have a limit, but yeah, so the Lancet Commission, which three of us are involved in and some of you in the audience, is coming out hopefully sometime early next year. And it's, it's got lots of experts together to, do, to, dis, to come together, vote on how we should actually redefine how we tackle and define obesity. It will be challenging, but look for it when it comes out. And I think you know, um, it will certainly try to move the field forward. It may, may not be perfect in everyone's eyes, but I think it's in the right direction. So let's see how we go. And coming back to you, Paolo, I mean, we're familiar with the Edmonton, you know, talked about Canada, the Edmonton stage of, of obesity. Could you briefly tell us what you think about that and what it is effectively? Yeah, well, we had around several staging systems, but um, I think we all agree that the Edmonton obesity staging system by Arya Sharma and Bob Kushner uh, was, went to evolutionary selection and came out to be probably the, the most used one. And in fact, it, it turns back to the to the 3M that, that Navid was referring before, uh, because we, 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 it's important that we keep in mind measures, as we just said, but also the degree of uh, uh, unhealthy uh, complications or comorbidity or whatever. And since our aim, as, as Karel said, is uh, uh, health gain, it's important that we categorize. So we are able, when we talk uh, uh, with colleagues, to say, okay, this is a 37 with uh, 130 waist and a uh, uh, EOS uh, stage three. And this immediately gives us, give us the, 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 the phenotype that we have in front. Of course, it's all the staging system have sure. limitations, but certainly help us a lot. And so uh, this is also important that as a metabolist, and I think most of us are metabolists and diabetologists, we should not uh, stop uh, on the, on the, on the, on the uh, on the um, metabolic, actually, the medical is metabolic, but we have really to see the quality of life, the function, sure. and also the mental. Thank you very much. So, what about, and this comes back to um, what's happening in routine care. Things have actually improved uh, since, we, since I graduated many years ago. I think people are now much more tuned to adiposity and obesity. But have a look at this. So this is, um, in this diagram, for about 14, almost 15,000 people uh, living with obesity. Um, of those, only about one in two had ha had discussed weight in the past five years. Uh, only sort of one in three had been diagnosed with with obesity, and only one in five actually had a follow up appointment. So we're failing four out of five patients, even by this optimistic um, 
you know, um, um, sort of study um, survey, as it were. So here is a really an interesting debate, uh, interesting survey. So reasons for not discussing weight between the health care professional and, the, and an individual living with obesity. So patients living with obesity, one in uh, five say, I do not feel motivated. So four in five are motivated, whereas the healthcare uh, profession thinks seven out of 10 are not motivated, which is, you know, it's almost stark opposite. And then in terms of interesting losing weight, almost 93% of people are interested in losing weight. If you think about it, people do not want to be living with BMIs of 35. It doesn't make sense. They've tried the best within their understanding of life to have lost weight, but they've, they've, they've not succeeded. So 93% of people are interested in losing weight. Whereas the healthcare professional thinks that actually only 30% are interested in losing weight and 70% are not. So uh, we have to change our thinking as healthcare professionals that patients do want our help and we have to up our game in terms of how we help them. And now that we also have better tools that I think will also come into play as well. And actually, in line with this, there's a lovely paper by Paul Aviad and Susan Jevon colleagues, the BUL uh, trial um, published in The Lancet 2016. And they did a brief intervention for obesity, and they, and they did it really quite well. But actually, what you can see is in the top line, in, in the kind of the red, and if you add the kind of dark blue, uh, so the dark blue is helpful, and the red is very helpful for what patients thought was useful. And around about almost 90%, 9 out of 10 people living with obesity thought that brief intervention was actually helpful. So patients want our help, and this tells us that they do. And how we go about doing that is actually really, really important. And that allows me to finish on this then. So the first step in obesity management is asking for permission to say, look, can we, would it be all right if we discussed your weight? That is the first step. And most people living with obesity are happy to discuss weight. So we show, the way we ask it, we show compassion, empathy, and it starts to build patient-provider trust. And that's the start of the journey that we're going to take our patients on. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, actually, no, one last slide. Um, and on that point, therefore, I think this all therefore makes sense. We have to be positive, helpful and supportive, be aware of nonverbal communication, be collaborative, and be understanding and avoid stigmatization when we talk about weight management with our patients. Um, and here's the final conclusion. We're slightly over, but I think Paolo will catch up anyway. Beastie is causally associated with many long-term conditions. And the key point is causally associated. The condition that you mostly often see is type 2 diabetes par excellence is the condition most strongly, but there are many other conditions variably associated in a causal way with, the, uh, with obesity. More emphasis should be played on, scre on screening for obesity. Um, such screening should identify the causes and consequences of abnormal or excess adiposity on patients' physical, mental, and functional health. Uh, barriers to timely management include lack or delay of formal diagnosis of obesity and subsequently a delay initiating weight management conversations. And that's the key, delaying conversations in people living with obesity. And the first step to effective obesity management is initiating a conversation around weight. And from that point, we'll move forward and I'll let Paolo take over from there. Thank you very much. So back to the Italian English. Okay, so let's start with this slide that is taken again from the Action IO study, this big survey uh, that, that Navid present, of which presented some, some um, results. This uh, uh, relate to the question, uh, do you believe obesity is a chronic disease? And in fact, uh, the vast majority of healthcare professionals on, on your right answer, uh, yes, I believe it is a, a chronic disease. And it's close to 70% 
uh, of people with obesity answered that. Uh, um, of course, we don't know uh, the reason why they believe it's a disease, but I doubt that they uh, think more uh, of obesity being a disease for the, for the complications, for, for the comorbidities and all the, 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 the things that, that, that makes a, a person with obesity unhealthy. And probably uh, they are not thinking to what Karel pointed out, that I think is extremely important. Because if we are facing a condition in, that is not the consequence of uh, a wrong uh, reversible choices, but is linked to subcortical alteration, genetic, epigenetic, neuro, neuroendocrinology, and whatever. Well, we really believe is a disease, and therefore this disease need to be treated. Okay, back to the five A's. We are in our office. We are in front of a person. There is a difference between um, um, the office of a diabetologist, <coughs> in which the patient expect that. Uh, is or diabetes is treated, uh, or if this is the office of an obesity expert and the patient comes because he would like to, uh, to to go through a weight to a weight loss. So this probably changed a bit the ask aspect because in the first case you really need to be extremely empathic. Sorry, extremely empathic uh, to ask the permission. In the second case, probably is 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 you know is intrinsically uh, uh, um, uh, clear that the patient is coming to you for that reason. But then we have to assess, advise, and there is a, another very important point is, is the agree, okay? Uh, all the, uh, except for the ask, all the other A's uh, are coming from the NCDs, so you know that very well. When you explain to a patient that uh, he needs to take a drug for uh, high cholesterol, high blood glucose, high blood pressure, or whatever. You have to explain the risk, explain the reason why, and you have, the patient has to agree in order to uh, achieve adherence. Uh, and for obesity, this is of paramount importance because uh, the, the, we have to discuss about the goals. What do you expect? Okay, And therefore, uh, uh, later on, we will discuss this uh, aspect. Yes, optimizing obesity management. There are two question marks. Is treating the root causes of weight gain the foundation of obesity management? Certainly, yes, but it's really true that if we know that, then we solve everything. Karel, what do you think about this? You know, I think, you know, we've, we know that, you know, people have, you know, a certain lifestyle changes that is necessary, but very often it's disappointing when people actually start exercising, eating correctly and don't lose weight. You know, so just changing maybe some of the, those have not, are not as effective as we would like them to be. Yeah, definitely. So uh, it's important that we try to understand the root causes, but by understand the root causes, not necessarily bring us and our patient to the success. But certainly you have to remember of the 3M and also very important is the social milieu. milieu. Uh, Patient-centered outcomes, probably uh, we will move uh, toward uh, better uh, tools that help us to, 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 to reduce the, the, the necessity uh, of psychological intervention. I, uh, I don't know, Navid, what do you think about the psychological intervention and treatment of obesity. <laughs> um, yikes. Um, it's, I mean, I think the reality is the toolbox we have, both in terms of lifestyle, the whole package of lifestyle, 
and obviously other tools is substantially improved over the last sort of 10, 20 years. Um, I think we're also starting to realize we can improve um, how we talk about lifestyle much better. We actually have to be very prescriptive and show people the direction they need to take and how they make those changes. And we haven't done that in the past. You know, it's no longer good enough to say to an individual, go and lose weight and they leave your door and they think, well, I've been trying that for the last 30 years. What do I do? So we actually, and also, it's no, also no longer good enough to say, here is a 25-page diet sheet or a booklet. That doesn't work either. You know, we have digital tools, we have other things. All of these things are definitely going to help. Uh, but, but of course, we've got other tools as well now in, in, in the box. And it's how we mix and match those going forward is going to be the key. And the good thing is we're in a lot better place now than we were 25 years ago. These are our toolbox, okay? And, 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 and certainly, if we stick to lifestyle changes alone, well, unfortunately, we know that 95% of the person with obesity at the best will, will, will adhere for a certain time frame, but then it will not continue forever. So probably you need psychological support, but certainly we know that bariatric surgery is effective and now we are uh, awaiting for very, very effective pharmacologic intervention that in my opinion will revolutionize the treatment of, of, of obesity. We are at the ASD meeting, so Uh, I think it's important to, to, uh, to talk a bit about the ADA, uh, ASD consensus uh, treatment statements. Uh, it's more a consensus than, than real guidelines. Because over the years, the, the importance of, of targeting uh, overweight and obesity is becoming greater and greater for all the reasons that you already know. So weight management should be a central focus, okay? A central focus. As Navid said, we know that type 2 diabetes is probably the first uh, um, causally linked consequence of increased adiposity and of uh, dysfunctional adiposity. Uh, well, 5% has been a target. We know that 5% is enough for improving blood glucose and blood pressure, But certainly, if we want to think about uh, remission, we should move towards more than 10%. And now that we have drugs that goes beyond 15 and even 20, maybe, this will com ch change completely uh, 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 the picture. I don't know, uh, Karel, what you think about the, 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 the 5% threshold in a setting of... Uh, I, I think we have to be more ambitious. You know, and I think we can be more ambitious now. And I think that is to, you know, so from a nutritional point of view, we see that, you know, double digit weight loss is what moves the needle pharmacologically as well as surgically. So I think it's a wonderful space and time to yeah. be in. Yeah. And I also add that again, and I will show you now, that 5% might uh, satisfy some health gain, but do not certainly satisfy the patient expectations. Um, This is another matter of discussion. Here you have a dichotomic view, okay? The, the, the naive patients and the patients that, that underwent various unsuccessful attempts to reduce weight. And, and certainly this is a grading of actions. In the left side, you do all the things that goes in the lifestyle uh, and nothing more, whereas in the right box, you have the more Uh, strongest action, very low-calorie diet, pharmacotherapy, bariatric surgery, etc. Now, the question is, but if we know that the naive patients will become a 
patients that will go through several attempts, shouldn't we be less inertial and be a little bit more, you know, uh, aggressive, pass me the word, even with the naive patients? Navid, what, what do you think about that? Um, no, I mean, in terms of, yeah, we, I mean, I think we should be, you know, people who've had previous uh, unsuccessful attempts, we have, obviously, you can see the toolbox here. Um, obviously, as guidelines evolve, um, we have to think about, the, you know, um, a whole variety of things, but certainly, as I've said before, we have multiple therapies now available that can help us. Um, obviously, each country has to decide what it can afford to do at the moment, but things will change over time. Yeah. And um, so I think we're in a lot better space, as we've all said. I mean, going back to the left-hand side, I quite like this, actually, because it's a very simple summary of the kind of lifestyle changes that many people don't yeah. un quite yeah. understand. And if we can even simplify even the left, that might even... I mean, it's not just about treatment, it's also about prevention as well. Sure, sure. If we can... You know, we, ideally, we want to change the environment. That's not going to happen very quickly, yeah. if at all. Um, but certainly, how we give messages to p our patients could be a lot simpler in terms of prevention. But equally, in terms of treatment, we now have a range of treatments. And I think what where we will be in 10 years' time will be very interesting. Um, a whole range of two, you know, toolbox with lots of different things that can help. Yeah. Hopefully, what we'll find over the next 10 years is that all of those, that the evidence is that these things are safe that they're giving lots of multiple, multiple benefits, both in terms of disease outcomes and patient-reported outcomes, because that's, that's the direction of what we're all traveling. Yeah, well, thank you very much. In any case, I think that the, the, the left bot, uh, box, as Navid uh, said, is close to prevention, and we are more on the treatment side, and yeah. therefore we need to assess the patients correctly, as we already said, and probably move toward more effective treatments. Uh, Okay, so let's agree on realistic expectations. Uh, people with obesity tend to have specific expectations. From the action I all studied, this, 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 this expectation were around 20% weight loss. Uh, we will have drugs that will help us reach this very big number, but for the moment, I think we need to uh, really discuss with the patients the objective, the health gain, and uh, to set realistic goals. Uh, otherwise, the adherence will be, uh, will be lost. Um, well, in the other box, you have the reason why um, it's always difficult to reach this, uh, this uh, agreement. Um, but certainly, uh, we will move towards uh, more effective drugs and therefore probably this um, uh, um, this agreement part of the 5S will be easier in the future. For the moment, it's very important that we set goals, we discuss the goals with the patients, and we, we agree uh, together as a contract uh, in order to achieve, for the first step, that, that goal. So in summary, obesity is a complex neurobehavioral disease in which abnormal or excess body fat impairs health, um, and, 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 and this excess body fat may be uh, distributed in different ways and may function in different ways. So it's extremely important to link these uh, abnormalities with the metabolic derangement, and, and, and therefore the diagnosis should be focused e uh, uh, either on the uh, adiposity measure, as we previously discussed, and with the, with the staging of the different... <coughs> Uh, of the different complications. Um, optimal care 
uh, relies on an holistic approach. Uh, and certainly we need a patient-centered approach that relies on communication. It's extremely important. Obesity is not like uh, hypertension or uh, high blood glucose diabetes because you really have a complex <laughs> psychological milieu uh, together with many health issues. So it's important to have a, a patient-centered. We need really to talk deeply with our patients. Well, I think this is the last one, and thank you, thank you very much for your attention. So we move now to the last part, that is Q&A. So from the audience, uh, if you have any question for uh, one of us, all the three of us. Yeah, or even challenges. Yeah, yeah sure. Debates. Yeah. It's uh, early in the morning, uh, and Carol, I appreciate your talk about the thermostat and stuff. And then it made me realize that we don't know two things, and I think they're very important. What if we're all wrong and obesity is actually an imbalance between thermogenesis and gratification? Mm. And then it made me realize that we don't actually even know if there is a hormone for thermogenesis or there is a hormone for gratification. And we know it's in the subcortical area, but we don't know the relays at all. And we haven't made any progress in those areas. And I think that we cannot treat obesity and cure obesity if we don't know those things. And by the way, everything we hear here about the GLP-1 receptor analogs or the GIPs or the triple uh, deckers, uh, they reach a plateau. And after that, they're no longer working. And I think we have to tell our patients and we have to give them the message that this is not the absolute cure of the disease. All right? Because otherwise, the pharmaceutical companies will make tons of money and the patients will actually gain not too much. So if I may respond, so I would agree with about 90% of what you, would, what you said. Where I would maybe you know change the approach is that you know i do agree that these treatments that we now have be it pharmacological treatments or even surgical treatments i no longer think of them as appetite suppressants or weight loss drugs okay if you think about rheumatological diseases you know now the new biologics that we have for rheumatological diseases are not painkillers they are disease-modifying drugs. And I think what we are seeing is that these new pharmacological treatments, they are disease-modifying drugs. They bring patients down to a new uh, balance point, and that balance point is very often higher than the patients would like it to be or you and I would like it to be. So many patients still have a body mass index over 30. Um, so I agree with you, this is not a cure, but I think these are disease-modifying drugs. However, what, you're, what I would agree with is if we tell our patients that these drugs will make you feel less hungry and these drugs will um, reduce your weight, then patients will discontinue the treatments because at some point they're going to become more hungry and their weight is going to be higher than they would like it to be. But I think it's incredible if we can get 25% weight loss. It changes the impact on other diseases. So, so I would be cup half full you know, um, but I appreciate the, we, it's, it's not a cure. I agree with that. Uh, if I can add something, uh, I think that these drugs, uh, 
really hit the areas that are uh, somehow modified in the thermostatic um, example made by Karel, because it's true that thermogenesis is important, but it came out even from the genome-wide association studies that are more the genes expressed on, 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 on the appetite and satiety rather than the thermo thermogenic ones. And also the link between these areas and the hedonic areas seems to be in, uh, tightly interrelated so that if the patients achieve a, a good sense of gratification at the lower level of caloric intake, I think this is a, an extraordinary success. It's true that all the drugs reach a plateau depending on their potency, okay? And certainly if this plateau is reached a, a, at, at a level that do not meet the expectation, then the, pa the patient will interrupt the drug. But if the drugs will arrive uh, at the plateau after having lost 20%, well, then the situation is, con is, is, is very much different. And I believe also that the adherence, as compared to all the other dr drugs, will be much higher because you really feel that, that you are reaching a point in which you have health gain in one hand and also gratification help in the other end. This is not always, of course, there is exception, whatever, but I think this is an enormous step forward for uh, treating the disease. Yeah. I mean, Paolo, can I just say, obviously, our job was not to talk about specific drugs. Sure. But, uh, but I think the good thing is there are ongoing trials which will show us the evidence, you know, and there are already some trials being published. And then I think so you have to be agnostic. What does the evidence show? How much heart failure or heart disease or other outcomes can we actually reduce? How much improvement in quality of life, physical functioning do, we, do, do these um, new medications allow us to achieve? And what's the cost-benefit ratio of these things? So let's be agnostic. The trials are ongoing. The data so far look encouraging. And then take it from that. And I think, and I think that's what we should be doing. Let's look at the evidence base. And, and in some ways, as Car Carell said at the beginning, obesity is just like a risk factor, like blood pressure treatment. And if they do show that actually with the substantial reduction that we do improve substantially outcomes, which is what so far it looks like, and they do so safely, then clearly we should be using them in our patients for health, be health benefits and cost benefits and for society. But, you know, so be Please? agnostic is what I would say yeah. to the evidence. Hi, uh, there's lots of talking about uh, the new uh, subclassification of type 2 diabetes clustering. Yeah so you can improve precision medicine for patients yes. with uh, diabetes. So taking it to obesity, what, what do we know about clustering uh, when a new patient with obesity comes to the clinic? I saw several papers about hungry brain, hungry gut, low burning. So uh, how, how can we do now? Uh, a better precision medicine. Correa has a perfect answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, we absolutely are working on that, you know, because that is such an important question. Because even if you just philosophically think about obesity as multiple diseases, and again, if we had this discussion 50 years ago, we would all be trying to find a cure for cancer because we thought cancer was one disease. Now we know type 2 diabetes is not one disease. We instinctively know that it's impossible for one disease to affect 25% of the population. We we at least are defining obesity as a disease, but I think the next step is to appreciate that there's different diseases that 
can't, that leads to increased adipose tissue. And I think, of course, what we are now seeing with uh, medications such as setmelanotide, where there's a specific gene mutation linked to treatment, that's, you know, clearly that's not, that's a very small number of patients, but it, it shows the principle that there are specific um, diseases. And, and I, and, but we need to be humble and say, we can't make that diagnosis. I can't make that diagnosis clinically. I appreciate, you know, the hungry, hungry brain, hungry, hungry gut. I think that's real steps forward. Um, how useful it is in clinic varies depending on your clinic, I think. But Paolo, what do you think, you know? Well, uh, if I may add something on the type 2 diabetes side that is indirectly related to what we are discussing now. The um, subtypes of type 2 diabetes diabetes were proposed by a life group, huge study that subdivided, you know, in severe insulin resistance diabetes, um, mild obesity disease, elderly rate, etc., and autoimmune also, okay, because uh, many times we uh, misdiagnose type 2 diabetes uh, for, a, for a LADA, for a late uh, uh, autoimmune diabetes of the adult. Uh, but uh, in other studies, it has been shown quite clearly that except for the elderly subtype of type 2 diabetes, all the other ones, included autoimmune, are linked to excess body weight. So again, even if you subdivide type 2 diabetes, except for the elderly form, is related to increased fat mass. So again, I think that, <laughs> that we really need, it, need to address adipose dysfunction, excess adiposity, and, uh, and uh, certainly this enter into the subclassification of the obesities, and I agree with you, Karel, about so, that. Yeah, last thing I would say, I think we have to finish now. There's a debate on, on subclassification of diabetes, so I think you should go to that Simon Griffin against, I think it's uh, a colleague from London, so go to that. I think we need a lot more work on subclassification of obesity. The Lancet Commission will get us closer towards maybe a start of that, but um, I think Paolo's point is completely correct. The vast majority of people with type 2 is a disease of excess ectopic fat. And I think we should probably stop there at that point, Paolo. I'll leave it to you to finish off. Yeah, well, actually, probably we got two more. No, we are. Should we close? Yes, probably. Yes, we should close. So I have the time. <laughs> Sorry. So, well, I really uh, thanks you um, uh, for, for, for the early wake up. But I'm, uh, I'm sure and I hope that. Uh, you were satisfied by our discussions, and I really thanks a lot uh, Professor Carelleru and Professor Navetsatar for, for, for the very great insights and discussion about obesity. I think that, that we are moving forward, and, and uh, uh, the classification of obesity, the interrelation with diabetes, and the treatment will be a focus of much uh, uh, advancement in the, in the years to come. So thank you very much again. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.